Welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing, or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. What does dance have to do with healthcare education? One of the things I've most enjoyed about the first nine episodes of Right Medicine is the disparate range of passions that people bring and the pathways that lead them into continuing healthcare education. In episode one, Audrey Tarno talked about her love for language, film and creative writing. In episodes two and three, Genevieve Long and Andrew Chaco talked about the power of listening to stories. And in other episodes, guests have shared how their passions for theatre, finding your inner authentic voice and fighting against medical error have shaped their professional journeys as education professionals. In episode 10, Adrienne Stevens shares how her passion for dance and her interest in the mechanics of movement, physical therapy, anatomy and physiology has translated into a career as a medical communicator. Dance requires precision, and that's what Adrienne practices in her work. Let's listen. Hello and welcome to Right Medicine. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and I'm here today with Adrian Stevens, Vice President and Head of Scientific Strategy at Heliostrategic Solutions. She's also founder of Performing Health, a wellness education nonprofit organization for young athletes. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to see you. Let's talk a little bit about how you found your way into this wider medical world and the wider world of education in medicine? Sure. Well, as you know, I started my life, the first part of my life as a professional dancer, growing up in New York City and in Manhattan, and uh, being exposed to all the wonderful things that New York City has to offer, as well as the fine teachers. And I was always interested in the mechanics of movement, physical therapy and anatomy, physiology. And I started teaching dancers at a very young age and non-dancers. And through that, it developed into physical fitness and training because at that time, as the fitness boom was occurring, uh, it was dancers that were leading the exercise and the fitness regimens. And Mm. once um, I started into exploring more with certifications, as they became more uh, standardized, I found exercise physiology. And through that, uh, it fueled my interest in movement, in physiology, and uh, writing up my own dissertation. Uh, it was picked up by the news services, by the AP. And through that way, I learned about medical communication and writing and editing and found that 
I did not want to be in a lab for the rest of my life, studying a very small aspect, um, and really found that medical education and communication provides a rewarding experience to me. That's a beautiful description of your your path into the medical education world, which is a pretty wide world, really. And you talked about writing your dissertation for your doctorate in exercise physiology. What were some of the things that you learned in that process of writing that fuel your approach to communication and education? Because writing a dissertation is a pretty lonely and sometimes soulless experience. (laughs) Yeah, I liked the writing. I was working, I was very productive with my professor. Uh, He had taken me on as his associate at the College of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia University. And we were a highly productive team. Um, He was foreign um, and his writing skills were, uh, you know, less than desirable, put it that way. And I found that, number one, in the dissertation process, you have to communicate. And I liked researching and and unearthing new areas to supplement the principal line of thinking for the dissertation. And the other was being able to write clearly and succinctly. And I think anyone who's been in this business and who's written abstracts can appreciate the fact that you've got 200 or 250 words and every word has to count. And I've translated that into uh, the educational material that I've developed, whether it be slides or monographs or what have you, the simplicity of the words and effectively communicating a message that is paramount. Are you a writer that writes the abstract first or at the end of the process? Uh, that is a good question. Um, I am now finishing my MBA. And in this kind of business writing, one has to write executive summaries. So whereas in scientific writing, I might have done the abstract last I'm finding with the business writing and I'm weaving business writing and scientific communication, the executive summary is coming first um, because it frames up how much I want to elaborate on certain topics. That's interesting. So can we talk about that a little bit in terms of what some of the key differences are that you see between scientific writing and business writing? Because... I work in certain kinds of reports that have an executive summary. But for me, the process, that's always the last thing that I do because I have to work through the material first and get a feel for the content and the shape. And then it's a more iterative process. You know, sometimes I write the executive summary and then I go back to the material and I restructure things a little bit. How do you approach that process? Well, with business writing, it's a little bit newer to me. So... I outline first what I want to write uh, very, very broadly, uh, topics that I might want to cover, certain references that I want to cover, and then I make sure to flesh them out uh, in a more elaborative process and bring my own experiences to it. And I think that that makes the writing come alive when you put some type of personal experience to it. Um, And this holds true with the medical communication, I think, is that we're all consumers at the end of the day. We all have family members. And I think it takes those key points 
about how the common people are navigating a medical world, bringing that back to the physicians who, you know, may lose sight of the most basic functions uh, that patients, consumers, people have, for example, just going out and getting their medications or the cost of medications or some aspect like that. What I'm hearing there is that sometimes physicians lose sight of, and I see this in some you know, medical education materials as well, the, the content is a million miles away from what actually goes on in the clinic mm-hmm. <laughs> and what the patient brings to the yeah. clinic. Often there are lofty goals, which are good goals, but starting the learning process or the education process at a at a level that doesn't really deal with the nitty gritty that clinicians usually have to wade through first before they mm-hmm. get to you know what is really important for the the patient or the encounter. So that wasn't really a, a question; it was more of a, a reflection. But you've worked across a lot of different types of organizations with a different relationship to education in healthcare and medicine. What are some of the kind of key differences that you see or different types of communication that that you see that really work and chime with physicians and and other healthcare workers as well? Well, I think you're correct. I've, I've worked across many aspects of medical communication from early in my career, medical advertising to uh, continuing medical education, CME, to developing training materials for medical science liaisons and communicating those messages as well as purely academic writing. And I think that, you know, the first step is having an engagement of thought leaders come together and discuss a topic. Um, And of course, that is very high level. It's very high level. They are very much interested in mechanism of action, alternative aspects for a molecule, whereas communication to a community level leader is is not going to focus that much on a mechanism of action. They're assuming that it works and should work and should be safe and tolerable and efficacious. But they are the ones who are dealing with uh, whether the drug needs to have a prior authorization before it can be prescribed or picked up by the consumer. I haven't done much on the uh, patient education aspect, but I think that translates to everything that I do is, is having that component with the physician and in medical writing is how do you have the communication? How do you have the dialogue uh, with the patient so that they understand? This was drilled very well into me when I was working in the obesity space, launching a new product in the market. And obesity really hadn't been considered a disease up until that point. And uh, there was a lot of shame put on patients if they were overweight, the terminology was uh, patronizing, and how we kind of changed the industry so that it was accepted as a disease, um, of course, by the AMA, and, and how physicians should start those initial conversations with their patients by finding out what was important to them and what were their life goals, and then backtracking into why taking care of their health and their weight 
would affect the longevity of the things that they like to do. And so from a medical writing perspective, you know, that was built right in about easily identifying the science, you know, making sure that that was down pat and solid, and then following through with data from research studies to really highlight that point. And then the clinical aspects about how physicians might recognize patients that commonly came in their offices and how to help them, you know, navigate their own health. And so there's a really important cultural aspect to writing there. And you, you, you touched on the kind and degree of shame that is associated with, and I think is still associated with, with obesity. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. curious to know how much you think that's shifted in your field and the work that, that you do. But it, it brings me to kind of wider point around when we're writing or creating materials for, you know, learners in healthcare or for MSLs for that matter, you do have the clinical aspect and the scientific aspect, but that cultural piece is really important because that informs the kinds of words that Mm -hmm. patients use to describe their experience to clinicians and also the clinician's own cultural experiences inform those those kinds of encounters. How important do you think it is for people who are creating education for clinicians to have a good grasp of cultural differences? There's a lot of literature on this now from motivational interviewing to, you know, the science about different areas where education can occur and how patients use different medications, for example, alternative and complementary modalities and herbal therapies, how patients are looking about pricing, you know, if they're getting generics or prefer to use an alternative that's not really FDA approved. And it's very, very important dialogue because you can alienate a reader mm-hmm. right away by using the wrong terminology. I mean, Absolutely. even the way that literature used to describe hypertensive patients or diabetic patients. And and that's a pet peeve of mine. It's that no one is characterized by their disease. And I think we do see more patients with obesity, patients with hypertension. It's not unilateral, but I, I think there has been a shift so that the the language is a little bit more fair and you're not putting blame on on somebody or shame because they have a given condition. And I think it holds true. And if you can substantiate all of this with literature, which there's always a wealth of literature to find, Mm -hmm. I think that's key. And I think it comes back to one of your earlier questions about the scientific writing is that whether it's promotional advertising or writing up an abstract, it's all about selling the science, right? And it has to, you have to understand what the hook is. Maybe it's a mechanism of action. Maybe it's patient care and cost. But what is the key point and why should people know about it? That's a good point. You talked about MSLs earlier. Do you see differences in the kind of education strategy and format that they respond to? compared with clinicians? And is that something that that really needs to be rethought, reshaped? I mean, where are we in educating MSLs? 
Well, from my experiences, I've um, been fortunate to lead three groups, three MSL teams for three different companies, um, from smaller to very large pharma. And the trainings invariably, and especially with the larger companies, is solid. You know, if it's a more uh, mature agent, there's a wealth of uh, educational materials and training materials. But I think it comes down to how uh, people learn, and everyone learns different. And adult learning principles really come into factor here. It's not just enough by reading. You have to have some interactivity so that it sticks. And it's very much like the model of physicians is learn one, do one, teach one, that you've got to be able to verbalize it and ask questions. And I always tell the MSLs, you just need that one question that the physician asks that you don't know and you find the answer to that you will never forget. And I think that is key to the way we all learn. Um, And so MSLs now from my experiences, they get a tremendous amount of reading material, which is supplemented with journal clubs and role playing, as well as interactive activities that are part of their training materials, and as well as by leading promotional programs for dinner meetings, for example, and then having the one-to-one dialogues with physicians, because they really have to show their value. And it's not just what they can get out of a thought leader, but it's what value they bring to the thought leader to educate them about the science and the field in which they're practicing. You mentioned interactivity a number of times there, and I'm wondering, are we interactive enough in the education that we design? And as I ask that question, I'm thinking about the work that you do with performing health and your passion for movement and exercise physiology. Do we need to get more creative about the kind of interactivity that we bring into medical education, whether we're talking about accredited education or whether we're talking about educating medical science liaisons or Mm -hmm. other people in the field? Well, I think we were starting to see some of that, like at the medical congresses, a lot of the booth activities were becoming more interactive, taking people through mazes and touching things and the virtual reality. Uh, My work at Helio Strategic Solutions, for example, is developing educational materials that the users will continually come back to. And what does that mean? So gamification tactics are very popular. Um, The world is obsessed with video games and this translates into the medical communication. Um, Now that because of the pandemic, when people are not getting out, it has become more challenging to get physicians to stay in front of their computer, which they already are because of not being able to see patients uh, in the way that they may have before. Um, and and how to keep them active. So it is it is a challenge, I have to say. And I think we're constantly trying to come up with new ways um, and new tactics to keep people's attention so that they understand that there's a site or a resource that they can come back to to get not only quality education but have it fun and 
have a venue that they can engage with their colleagues to discuss something. I think that's the piece that might be lacking is how do you maintain that thought leader interaction when you can't go to a Congress or you can't run down the street for coffee. And I actively think about ways that we can bring these groups of people together in a validated way that's impactful and compliant for legal ramifications of these companies. Right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your work with performing health and how the kind of education and training you do there might differ or be similar to your work in medical education? Sure. Well, this came about when I was doing work with obesity. And not only was I working with top level thought leaders, but I was educating the population. And the general population, you know, is struggling to maintain weight. And every couple of months, there's a new therapy, a new diet, a new regimen that comes out. And I thought, you know, how, how should dancers be learning or eating? And We've all heard rampant stories of um, crazy things that dancers have done. You know, I grew up in New York City in in a very high period of Balanchine when mm-hmm. dancers were starving themselves. And um, I, I took that insight um, to the dancers to really highlight mindfulness and sh- tell them that, and there was very little research and literature at that period of time, why dancers need to eat, what they should eat, how they can pack things and be more self-reliant, whether it's on tour or in their boarding school or in their regular days where they're going nonstop um, from school to the studio, how to take care of themselves, the importance of sleep the importance of maintaining blood glucose levels that are stable so it doesn't trigger hunger pangs and um, to take care of themselves that they're not excessively drinking or smoking. And this was received very well. I had been asked to lecture in Europe, which then sparked the whole eating and mindfulness into perfectionism into uh, changing body types and being more accepting of body types. And back in the studio is how to strengthen one's body and and whether it's with using bands and, and changing the philosophy that using weights will not build muscles to the contrary of what dancers might think they need to do and why common exercises are important for the dancers to maintain their physiology. I mean, back in the day when I danced, we were told never to ice skate or never to horseback ride or no one jogged because we were told it was going to build different muscles. and, And that's not the case anymore. And dancers do need to be aware of their environments. They do need to read. I tell the dancers, go watch a football game of your peers, you know, see what other people are interested in because the world is big and you need to have, as an artist, uh, a bigger view of the world. Right. No, I I think that's a a really interesting shift that's occurred in that, you know, I've seen it in my own kids over the years they're in their in their 20s now but um even in the years that they were in dance there were some changes in how 
all of those things were discussed and, and, and talked about. And I'm curious to know what your perspective is on the role of movement and mindfulness in educating clinicians, because it seems that this is an area that if we're talking about supporting clinicians in the work that they do, whether we're talking about nurses or doctors um, or other healthcare workers, then self-care, as you noted, probably needs to be part of that. Is there a role for continuing education to play there in terms of supporting self-care for healthcare workers? That is a very good suggestion. I have not touched on it per se, but it's important, you know, when we're all at these um, protracted medical congresses and the data are going and going and going and you're sitting there uh, all day, you know, how wonderful it is when you finally have a chance to stretch and move. And I think there are data to support that when you move while you're learning, it's more likely to to stick. Yes. And I have not seen any kind of movement towards that, but it's certainly very important. I think Mayo Clinic actually includes treadmills in its board prep courses to allow people to move while they're you know reading material or as breaks in between sessions but yeah the kind of movement piece is one of the things that I think is starting to emerge as not just an adjunct to learning but actually a critical piece of reinforcing the same thing with music right so if you if you sing something you're more likely to remember it and uh the same principle, I would imagine, holds true. Well, we'll need to um, look into that. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd like to talk about today? Um, I think we're at a very interesting period now with uh, medical education, and it's exciting to see what new developments may arise. Um, There's certainly a lot of competition uh, among companies, but companies that really have loyal, engaged audiences, and you yourself know that when physicians uh, find a place that they are comfortable going back to because the information is credible and not skewed towards one perspective or another, they come back to it. And I think there's a lot of competition potentially in the field, and we constantly have to strive to cater to the audiences for them to come back. 100%. Thank you so much for your time, Adrienne. It was great talking to you today. Thank you so much. Adrienne has worked across many aspects of medical communication, including advertising, continuing healthcare education, developing training materials for medical science liaisons, and in academic settings too. One of the things I took from our conversation is how medical writers and healthcare educators become conduits of communication between physicians, nurses, pharmacists, and other healthcare providers and their patients. As many of Right Medicine's guests share on this podcast, storytelling is the most important part of that communication process. And for me, that's the connection with dance. Dance is storytelling through movement. It requires a position, attitude, rhythm and style. And so does medical communication. Precision is paramount and every word has to count. 
I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine. Right Medicine.